Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Numbers 23. We'll start off. Actually, I'm going to start in Numbers 22, verse 41, because this is one of those chapters where I think they put the division just in a weird spot. Um, so 22:41 says, So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam, or Balaam, 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 and brought him to the high places of Baal. And from there he might observe the extent of the people. So we start this kind of next phase. We continue the story of Balak and, and Balaam introduced back in the last chapter or last week. And last week we saw, if you recall, the donkey outsmarting the seer. And that's a, an important thing to know about the story, that this is kind of Jewish humor or a form of literature called satire. Or at least the irony is extremely strong here, right? So we're going to see this thing that... Uh, well, and, and let me build up Balaam a little bit because the Jewish people didn't really build him up properly because he kind of looks like uh, an arse through the last chapter, right? And, 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 and thus comes the phrase, are you a dumb arse, right? Because that was right from Peter and these chapters. Uh, it's why we use that animal as an animal that's kind of an image of, of someone who's stubborn and, and, and whatnot. But... If you go to the Aramaic writings, the, the Der Allah inscription is one of the oldest. In fact, I think it's the oldest Aramaic inscription that we have. And it was found in a, a, a place in Jordan. There was an earthquake. It cracked open an old tomb and there was all this writing on the side. And Balaam is mentioned in that writing as the seer of the gods, plural gods, not God. Um, specifically, uh, Balaam was initially an Ashtar prophet or someone who, is, who, who served Ashtar, but also it says Shinger, which is like a word that means all the other gods. In other words, Balaam was like a professor of God worship in the early ancient Aramaic world. And in that sense, we get this. So I thought I'd read from you from the Deir Allah script so you can hear this. And, and frankly, compare this to what we've been reading in the Bible. Like it's a very different kind of tone and a different kind of thing. And, we, and it's believed that this would have been written after these events where basically Balaam goes off with his tail between his legs. And, and it's written this. This is a prophecy of, ba of Balaam. There, there, let, there let there be darkness and no perpetual shining and no radiance. For you will put a seal upon the thick cloud of darkness and you will not remove it forever. For the swift has reproached the eagle and the voice of vultures resounds. So it goes on and on and on, but Balaam is not typically a happy guy. And tonight we're going to see the prophecies or oracles of Balaam. It takes a totally different tone. It's like there's other words put into his mouth, but it doesn't sound like the writing of Balaam in the Aramaic. Um, so anyways, 
That said, Balaam was the guy. So if you were anywhere in the ancient world at this time, Balaam was the Billy Graham of the time, only not a Yahweh Billy Graham. He was a, a, an Ashtar Billy Graham kind of person. But people had heard of him. People knew of him. He was the best the world had to offer. So he says usually all the right things. So you hire him. You get him to curse people. They're cursed. Bad things happen. He also is believed to have lots of power. So what the world thinks is great, the Bible thinks is, is inferior to a donkey. So there's irony here. Um, he is the counterpart to Moses. There's the heathen world with Balaam. And then there's Moses who doesn't even know this happens because God's fighting his battles for him. So that's where we kind of pick up here. Um, and I wanted to, re I I'll reread this one too because I just think it's context too from the New Testament. What we get out of the Balaam stories is the image of kind of a stubborn person. Second Peter 2.15, I read this last week. They have forsaken the right away and gone astray, following the way, um, uh, the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his inequity, a dumb donkey speaking. Jude 1.11, woe to them that have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. The interpretation or the commentary on this passage is not that Balaam's a good guy, but it's really hard to read the last chapter and see that. Because he says all the right things and then he does the wrong things. His actions and his words don't match. And so you have this kind of deep level of, of inconsistency that's taught to all the Jewish children. So when Peter and Jude are writing about this, um, they're writing in turn, this is how they understood the stories to be interacted with. That you should be reading Balaam as a hypocrite and someone who's trying to fight against God. So we have ironic satire, a deep and a great irony. Uh, that we have this uh, great man making a donkey out of himself. And Steph prefers that I use the word donkey. Okay, I know. <laughs> I think it's tough, for me at least, I want to pray when you have people that are this deceptive, I can't see it with my own eyes and my own ears. I need the Lord to give me eyes to see and ears to hear when you have somebody who's false and they're doing the wrong things and, and whatnot. It's like somebody who's been divorced three times giving you marriage advice. It might be great marriage advice, but the source of it, the actions behind it are just off. And it's something where that gets to be really hard to interpret. So we'll start off in, in Numbers 23 with that very long intro. Then Balaam, which means not of the people, said to Balak, which means destroyer, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and, ba uh, Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. So again, we see the number seven. This means the perfected offering. Um, in contrast to what we just saw back in Leviticus, where pretty much one offering did the work, these folks are doing much more ornate, elaborate offerings. And they're impressed with set, uh, the uh, extravagance. The last verse of the other chapter said this was the high places of Baal, which already would have had altars built. So they're building brand new altars to this altar complex kind of place that they're already at. So typically in the Bible, we see that God asks for one altar to be built. Exodus 20, 25, Deuteronomy 16, 21, Deuteronomy 27, 5, 6, Joshua 22, 29. Usually God just asks for one altar. He asks for the altar to be made with uncut rocks. Like don't do anything fancy or flourish because there's nothing you can build that's going to impress God. And it's not about what you build or how many of them you build. 
it's really the perfect gift or heart. It's not the perfect altar that matters. So in this sense, they've built the perfect altars. Um, likely Balak would have been sacrificing to a god named Baal uh, that was mentioned at the end of the last chapter. Um, Balaam could have been offering to anybody. So it could have been a different god on each altar that he offered to. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. Uh, the word Lord there should be in all caps in your Bible. That means he's using the word Jehovah. So it's not just any God. This is he's going to go talk to this particular God, which was associated with the Israelites. In Numbers 24.1, it says that he goes to use sorcery. So when he says, I'm going to go away from you, like basically you stand here and I'm going to go off and mutter some things and wave my magic wand that I hit my donkey with. Um, he's going to, he's doing incantations. He's putting on a show. And this is what this guy does for a living. Um, and God met Balaam and he said to him, I've prepared the seven. Oh, so, and he said to him as Balaam said to God, I've prepared the seven altars and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. It's interesting how God meets Balaam, but Balaam talks first and tells God how awesome he is and what he's done. And I feel convicted by that because I do that a lot. God, I'm working on this for you. I'm trying to do this. And we come to God sometimes and tell God what we're doing for him instead of just fellowshipping with God. Um, in this sense, uh, Balaam is not interacting with God the way the Jewish people do. The desolate height, the attempts to conjure things, the use of worldly methods, multiple altars, and now he's kind of uh, uh, trying to get God to do what he wants him to do. God's response, interestingly, is nothing. He doesn't respond to the fact that Balaam builds altars, like doesn't even comment on it. Um, and I thought that was cool. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he doesn't even comment on the altars. So he returned to him and there he was standing by his burnt offerings, he and all the princes of Moab. God, God unnaturally puts a word in Balaam's mouth. Interestingly, it's the same phrase that it was used when God put a word in the donkey's mouth which is part of the irony here. It's a direct mirror of what God did with the donkey. The donkey got stopped or turned aside or pushed away three times. Balaam's going to have a, an oracle from God three times. So it goes in sets of three. And then there's a fourth ad at the, at the end, which is an interesting mirror of the seven altars that the world tries to build. God has seven interactions, three with the donkey, three with Balaam, and then one little extra addendum at the end just to put a thorn in Balak's side. Um, Numbers 22, 28 is where you see where he opened the mouth of the donkey, which was the word patak, to throw open or to let something loose. Uh, with the donkey, he was holding something back and then it was loosed. Uh, with Balaam, uh, he wanted he was loosing in his tongue, but now God reins that tongue in and it gets that tongue to say something. So he puts a word in him. Uh, it's to set or lay upon or to forcibly shove something in against nature. Um, I'm sorry, I said before it was the same word. It's a different word. It's the same idea. God puts a word in their mouths, but he opens the mouth of the donkey with the Hebrew word patak, and he puts a word in Balaam with the word sum. And put has that kind of forcible connotation to it. So with the donkey, he was letting the donkey say what the donkey wanted to say. With Balaam, he's putting words in his mouth against his will. So we do see God kind of doing that. Um, the first oracle, here it is. Uh, oracle, by the way, the word is mashal. It's a proverb, a parable, a poem. 
inspired speech. It implies that it's something that's coming from a god or the god in this case. He took up the oracle and said, parallel couplets are throughout the... Oh, no, you didn't say that. That's my note. Sorry. Bad coloring. Okay, he took up his oracle and said, what we're going to see in this oracle, and, and I like the literary part of it too, we're going to see parallel couplets. So we're going to see pairings where the first part of the couplet is the physical world and the second part of the couplet is the, phys or the spiritual world. And they're going to be kind of matched together. And that, it sounds a little redundant, but if you notice how that works, it's a contrast between this world and the spiritual world. So here we go. Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains to the east. Physical, that's actually happened. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. There's the reason. Um, so we have the physical and we have the spiritual piece. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce, which is a military term to defy something, whom the Lord has not denounced? There's, we have these bigwig skills in the face of God. So we're doing this physically. It's how do we even do this? Or, or I'm sorry. How shall I curse God is a verbal physical thing, the word curse. But to denounce is like an attitude or a spiritual thing. How do I come against somebody who is, who is on the side of God? Verse 9, for from the top of the rocks, I see him, physical, and from the hills, I behold him, spiritual. It means to understand something or to take something in fully. There, a people alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. I love the last line. So there's this visible, visible world, and then there's this not visible spiritual world. And at the end, we see this piece of him. I see him, and from the hills, I behold him. Um, and that they're, that they're set apart. To see is ra'ah, to see with the eyes, to view something. Beholding is to appraise or regard something fully, to take it all in and see what's going on. So where have we heard this idea before, this last idea of um, that there's a people that are not of the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. They're physically there, but there's something greater about them. And I... And I would say the place we've seen that before is with Jesus, because that's how he talks about his disciples. Same kind of concept. John 17, if you want the reference. And I'll start in verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that there may be joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not pray that I should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, and your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I also send them into the world. Israelites are the same way. They're being sent out into the world. No different. So how do you curse God's people? Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like this. Back in Genesis 28 to Jacob, and then in Genesis 13, 16 to Abraham, they were promised that the children of the descendants of Israel be like the dust of the earth. So in this prophecy, he's looking out at the people of Israel, and he sees kind of part of them, and um, that prophecy comes true. The descendants are as the dust of the earth. They're camped on this camp, and if you remember the shape of their camp, there's a tabernacle in the middle and then four wings going out from each side. And they're looking at it from the hills up above. And what he sees is just one of these legs. So there must be a hill blocking the view or something. And he can only see part of them. And we'll see that later. But then we have this idea that 
Who can even count one of the wings of, of, of Israel? And how intimidating this must have been. Spiritually then, he wants to go to heaven for, at the end of verse 10. I want to live my way, but I want to die the righteous way. And Balak isn't happy about this whole thing. He's ready for Balaam the Great to come and put this mighty curse on Israel and then go fight and beat him up. That doesn't happen at all. His spiritual bazooka backfires. And he basically gives this bleeding there. Uh, this, I'm sorry, he basically gives a blessing onto the people of Israel and says they're awesome and I can't curse them. And that's what he told him before. So to Balaam's credit, he warned the king this was going to happen. Um, so the first try, Balaam does it. He makes his attempt. He wants his payoff from Balak. Remember last chapter, chapter Balak said, I'm going to honor you with all. I'm going to pay you big money for this. So the attempt to make big money or the first try done in the name of greed just doesn't work. So let's try it again. Verse 11. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and look, you've blessed them bountifully. So he's not happy. He's going to try it again. The what have you done for me is actually adequately translated for me too. What have you done for me lately? So Janet Jackson would be happy. Um, the idea is I took you. It's funny when Balak gets mad that his language starts to slip a little bit. I took you to curse my enemies. In other words, in Balak's head, he grabbed or claimed Balaam and brought him out here. It wasn't Balaam's decision to make. Balak did it on his own. So I thought that was interesting. Balaam's captured and he's being used as a tool by Balak. And Balak starts to use that kind of language only when he's angry. Before he's angry, he was all nice and sweet. And suddenly he's not so nice and sweet. And that often happens with people like Balak. So you've blessed them bountifully uh, is a play on words. And again, you should note this. The word Balak in the Hebrew is B-A-L-A-Q. But the word Balak for blessing is B-A-L-A-K. So the end of this, pat, this verse says you have blessed them bountifully is Balak saying you have Balak Balak. So if you look that up in your little thing, it's actually, I don't know. Again, there's irony here, right? So it's a little play on words because they sound the same, but they're spelled slightly different. The payback was expected and the destroyer thought he would get destruction and the destroyer got the opposite of destruction. He got blessing, blessing on Israel's people. So he answered and said, verse 12, you must not take heed to this speech to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth. Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord's put in my mouth? So Balaam, instead of taking responsibilities for his actions, blames God. And then he gives a second prophecy. Verse 13, then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them. So one of the wings and shall not see them at all. Then curse them for me from there. Maybe it's that you are intimidated by Israel. So if we just get to where you can see a little less of a part of them, it'll be easier to bless just that part. Maybe you can't bless all of them. I think it's interesting how through this whole thing, Balak completely acknowledges the spiritual warfare. Balak has no issues with the idea that this is a spiritual battle that has to be fought before the physical battle. And he's lost the first round. So this is about what cannot be seen or they wouldn't even be having this discussion up on a mountaintop. They'd be talking strategy. So, so they try this. The other piece of this, again, see the humor here. This is almost a comical piece, well, Jewish humor, right? Does the location matter when you're trying to curse somebody? Like the theory of Balak here is let's move to another place so that we can curse them better. 
because clearly it's that they're sitting at like a worship center for Baal. And maybe Baal's power wasn't enough to curse Jehovah. So let's move to another high place and try another God, thinking somehow that's going to outsmart or trick God. Verse 14. So he brought them to the field of Zophim. Zophim is uh, translated as a watcher's lookout or kind of a, a guard tower of some sort on the top of Pisgah, which means cleft or opening. And they built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. So again, they build seven more altars. This is getting expensive. Of course, worldly religions are expensive. The bigger and more ornate the building, the better the religion. So there's no spiritual blessing necessarily. Balak just throws more money at it. Deuteronomy 3.27, um, Moses is on this same hilltop and he can see the whole promised land. So when it comes to a watcher's outlook, this is something that would be up maybe in the Golan Heights. So the travel between these sites would be significant. Like they're really trying to get an angle on this spiritual warfare. And the world goes to great lengths to fight their spiritual warfare. I think we should take note of that too. But it's really prideful to think that humans can ever see everything and that humans can somehow outsmart God. So the first attempt could be the attempt of greed. The second attempt really could be this attempt of maybe pride, right? They really think they're going to outdo things here. So they don't learn to obey or do what they're told. Verse 15, and he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. So comically, Balaam's still putting on the show. He gets his little wand. He does his little mantras. He does his little thing. God sees in his heart, and he's going to actually use Balaam again. Verse 16, then the Lord met Balaam. I think it's funny that Balaam says, I'll meet the Lord over there. And then the next verse, the Lord meets Balaam. Like, don't think you're going to get one up on him. And the way that Moses words this, and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him. And there he was standing by his burnt offering. So Balak has to kind of just stand there alone while this guy does all his stuff. And the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? Uh, he re Interestingly, in this verse, Balak uses Jehovah by name. So he actually is responding to it. Even the worldly people are learning that Jehovah is something to be reckoned with here. And maybe that's the whole point of this little side narrative, is showing that God's reputation is growing around the world through the nation of Israel. So here's the second oracle. Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. In other words, sit up straight and listen up. This is what God has to say. <clears throat> and in this uh, oracle, like, listen for the idea that where the first one was about how awesome Israel was, this one's about kind of the nature of mankind. God is not a man, verse 19, that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So who do you think God is, Balak? Do you think that a real God breaks their word? Or if I told you something in the first oracle, that changing locations is somehow going to make that first thing go away? Or that I'm going to reverse my intention towards people? But then that gives us some insight as into the nature of God and the nat nature of man. Does it do any good to ask people things twice? Yeah, if it's your parent and they're weak, you ask, you just keep asking until you get what you want. Or you keep going to your boss again and again and again. Can I get a raise? Can I get a raise? Can I get a raise? And with humans, it does help because we think people will change their minds because we're right, of course. 
and they should change their minds. But God's basically telling Balak, I'm not like that. I'm not like a human. I don't just change my mind. And I don't, if I say I'm going to do something, then I'm going to do it. Unlike a man, or even less than that, the son of a man, a shadow of a man, God never needs to repent because he doesn't do the wrong thing in the first place. God's so far above humans. In the beginning, it was God. It was not humans. So that's the key difference between these pagan religions and this new Jewish nation and religion that's been born out through human history so far. God doesn't change. It's one of the biggest differences that we see. God doesn't turn his mind on things, right? So we choose to believe or not in a God based on what we think God should be or what God says he is. And I just see this all the time and it saddens me that people decide what they think God should say or not say. And then they create a God, call him Yahweh, which is using his name in vain, or Jesus. And basically that God does whatever they think that God should do. And it's difficult. And if you've been coming to this Bible study for a long time, we're just reading what the book says. And a lot of times who God says he is and what God says he's for and against is tough for us to swallow. And that's okay. But it doesn't mean God's going to change who he is because of who we want him to be. So that's basically he's kind of putting that in front of Balak. Not only that, do we want to have a God who changes his mind? Because if our salvation is based on God's promises, don't we want God to be somebody who never by nature breaks his promises? They're always true and they're always kept. Because if that's true, then we can have reliance of our salvation. But if somehow God's changed his mind through history, then our salvation is in doubt. It has to be. Logically, it has to be. So that's a really difficult concept that I was wrestling with all week. Like, oh, Balak's learning something about God here. God doesn't change and he's not a human being. And I need to take that thought and meditate on it. God isn't who I want him to be. He is who he is. And he says it. I am who I am. Right? Not Popeye. God said it first. Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. So Balaam couldn't reverse what was said. This is what he has to do. The command is not in the original text. So it says, I have received a command to bless. The command should be in italics because it wasn't in the original Hebrew. It's been added to the English to fill it up because in the Hebrew, this verse reads really weird. Behold, blessing, blessings restored. That's how it reads. Verse 20. Behold, blessing, blessings restored. So they tried to turn it into a sentence and add an idea to it. But I, I don't know, for me at least, the Hebrew kind of works. It's not a hard thing to understand. Behold, blessings, blessings restored. He's blessed and I can't reverse it. So this is the second oracle, the first blessing, and now we have blessings, blessings. And that kind of works for me. Verse 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord is God the Lord, his God, is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. This is fascinating. We see a bunch of stuff in Israel so far, but the idolatry is gone. So to say Israel is without sin is not true. But they purely worship Yahweh at this point in history. That's without doubt. And because they give their worship to God alone, there is no idolatry. There is no human-made God that they serve. And there's no iniquity. Iniquity with the word aven or emptiness or vanity is something that someone's panting in vain or putting 
exerting energy in vain towards something that has no worth. So it's like running in place. So this idea that idolatry is like running in place is really kind of a clever idea. God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And the Lord God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. Wickedness, a mall, is trouble, vexed with labors. Interesting there, it says the Lord, his God is with them. His there, is that Israel? Because Israel would be a plural, right? This is not a plural word. It's a singular word. The Lord, his God, is with him. It suddenly shifts to a singular and becomes somewhat prophetic of some person that's going to come out of Israel, the shout of a king that should come out of Israel. So Balak, this guy who's not even Jewish, suddenly starts speaking about a king that's going to be born out of this nation. Like in the this far back in history, and some of the first prophecies about Messiah come out of the mouth of a Gentile. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, flipping between the plural and the singular. This is awesome. Wild ox, the word reem, actually means unicorn in some of your translations. So before you start saying, there are no such thing as unicorns, I don't think that's what the Bible's saying here. And some Bible translations have actually shifted it to rhinoceros, wild ox, or other animals that have a powerful horn that they use to beat other things up. Right? Wild ox is the closest one to this region of the world, and it is the powerhouse of all labor because they didn't have engines yet. Sorry, Grant. So they just had ox. And a wild ox would have been the most wild, ornery thing. And if you can tie it to a rope, it will pull stuff for you very far and very fast. It is the turbo blast V8 engine of the time. That said, verse 23, for there is no sorcery in Jacob nor any divination against Israel. They're not practicing the weird kooky stuff that Balaam is. They don't do chants. They don't do spells. They don't do stuff that humans have made up. And now it must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. The purpose of God's work with Israel is for other nations to look at him and say, holy moly, look at that. That's also the purpose of the church. When the church does the right thing, by the way, there were a thousand baptisms at one service in California today. Absolutely incredible what's happening out there. Just watch the news and see what's going on in California right now. The purpose of what God's doing with his people is so that people can say, look at what God's doing. Look at how much that person's getting out of their activities in the church. I want to do that too, because it's such a blessing to them. Maybe that could be a blessing for me. That's the purpose. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. So God likes both males and females. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and it drinks the blood of the slain. So the first oracle greed didn't work. And now this prideful thinking human thinks they can see it all from these mountaintops and the pride kind of falls short but the lion's pride wins. I thought that was clever. No? All right. The lion of Judah is obviously part of what's going on there. The ba then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Like, it, wouldn't it be better, Balaam, if you just shut up? How about you don't say anything if what you're going to do is bless this nation? And Balak's questioning whether or not he even wants to pay this guy because he's not rendering the services that he's been hired to. 
So why don't you just be a neutral oracle instead of saying all these good things about Israel? So Balaam answered and said to Balak, didn't I tell you saying all that the Lord speaks I must do? In other words, Balaam knew the Lord was going to stick words in his mouth. And he's trying to say, I don't have any control over this, Balaam. Balaam's third prophecy. So far they're 0-2. And I love the next verse. If you've struck out twice, are you going to do the exact same thing? Answer is yes. They're going to do the exact same strategy even after nothing happened the first two times. So no shift in strategy, nothing else. Only this time, let's mix the most awesome soothsayer of the universe, Balaam, and put him in the most awesome holy site in the known ancient world and put those two powerhouses together. This is like putting Bill Belichick with the 70 Cowboys. Like, let's just match them up and total dominance is what we're going to do because that's how the world thinks. And that's what the world does. Verse 27. Then Balak says to Balaam, please come. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me there. It's not an original tactic. They've tried it once. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor. This is interesting. Everywhere else where we see Peor in the Bible, it's called Baal Peor. Because Baal Peor is a known place in the ancient world. It's the top of a huge mountain, and it is the place that all this stuff happens. Peor is cleft. It's wide open. Baal Peor means wide open to Baal. So it's open door, open entry, open access, and it's a prostitution center. So what we know about this place is it's a holy site credited to the Moabites as a complete prostitution center. You go there and it's open wide to access. So it's a place that has the lust of the eyes. Our first one was done out of greed. The second one's done from the hill out of pride. The third one's done from a place of lust. And this is actually the place that will trip up the Israelites in the next chapter actually in two chapters. Josephus's account of this place, this is where I get this from, is in the Parashat Matat, which is an ancient writing, where Josephus says, yet they're the very ones who at the bidding of Balaam introduced the Israelites to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the Lord's community was struck by that plague. So it's all about what you see when you're up at Peor. It's all about the vision of it. Balaam, and, and that's been the theme here through the whole thing, so let me bring that theme out. Balaam was blind to what was going on. The donkey could see everything. They couldn't see Israel fully in the first ones, but in this third spot, they can see the whole camp. They couldn't see Israel's wealth over their greed. They couldn't see Israel's majesty over their pride. And they can't see Israel's purity over the lust that's in this center. They just don't get it. And I was thinking that's kind of how it is with sin. When we pursue things of this world, it's because we can't see that what we already have in Christ is better. That the purity of God is better. The majesty of God is better. The wealth of spiritual blessings from God is simply better than anything we can pursue in this world. What a cool thought, huh? Thank you, Balaam and Balak. They're blessing God and they don't even know it. So 28, verse 28, is going to be another play on words. It's Peor, not Baal Peor, because they're faking Yahweh out for now, right? Let's take Baal out of the title so that this can now be Yahweh Peor. This is a place where Yahweh is going to work with us. So they're still trying to work Yahweh. So Balaam took Balak to the top of Peor that overlooks a wasteland. There's tons of things to say at Peor that are much prettier or more handsome than a wasteland. 
But with the Jewish people, they word it, I think, spiritually accurately. The only thing you can see from this place is just a wasteland. There's nothing to it. So, Yeshame Baals, uh, which is the big word uh, that that uh, for wasteland that's there. They are the lords over the waste. They overlook or they're overlords over the waste is the proper translation over that. Balak and Balaam on top of Pehor, overlords of the waste. So the Jewish people aren't being nice. Yes, this is biased ancient text writing. Revelations 3.17, John sees the Laodiceans, which is one of the seven churches that's defined there. And I'm not going to get into all the biblical prophecy of Revelation, but listen what he says about the Laodiceans. Because you say I'm rich, I am wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked. You think you have everything, but all you have is a wasteland. And that's the danger of this world. We pursue everything and it often comes to just waste. The only things that remain are faith, hope, and love. And when we get to heaven, we don't have to have faith or hope anymore. There's really just love. It's the only real thing that's out there. I was super blessed when Zach was giving much improved electrical advice to Paul before the Bible study, because that's the ministry of being with people, is that when we have questions, we can ask each other. We can be blessed. We can get recipes from each other, places to shop from each other. And that is how we care for each other in some way in the ministry because that's not a big step from praying for one another and intervening for one another and reproaching and admonishing one another. It's how we love each other as a family of Christ. We take care of each other. That's far more real than what Balak and Beor have in verse 28, because all they have is a wasteland. They don't even have a relationship with each other. Balak's trying to use Balaam and Balaam's trying to use Balak. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay, thank you. They're just trying to use each other. So spiritually speaking, Israel's got all the best. Balak and Balaam in the worldly sense have all the best, but there's not even a threat to Israel. I like the idea that Israel doesn't even know what's going on right now. It's all behind the scenes. So verse 29, Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. So they did perfect, perfect, perfect. That's a complete set of perfects. That's three perfects. And they've done it three times. That's complete, complete, perfect, perfect. They've done everything that they think they can do spiritually to get on top of this Yahweh character and take control. Same strategy, same game, even more perfects and completes. Just keep throwing them in there. Three, seven, three, seven. Pride, lust, greed, all of it. Balaam's still complicit in wanting Balak's money and Balak's still complicit and then he wants Israel cursed. They're both still in a place of evil and Balak promises the world to Balaam, just like Jesus was promised the world by Satan in the wilderness, right? By the way, there's a nice comparison with Satan's temptations in the wilderness to what's going on here too, but not good enough to where I would share it with you. It's only a secondary B-level comparison. Numbers 29. Balaam foretells all the happiness of Israel. Verse 1. Now when Balaam saw, again, that sight thing seems to be a theme that keeps coming up. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as the other times to seek to use sorcery. Now he walked away from Balak. This time he set his face towards the wilderness. 
And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel camped according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. Didn't force him to do anything. In other words, Balaam's saying, what if I work with Jehovah? Instead of giving the word shoved down my mouth, which might have hurt. Let me just try to not do that this time because it wasn't comfortable or nice. It was overwhelming. Um, so a few things here. Balaam saw that it pleased God. So he's still trying to gain God. He's watching for what makes God happy instead of listening to his words. So he's strategizing. Balaam raised his eyes. Somewhat reflects the Israelites raising their eyes to the bronze pole, the serpent in the wilderness. They just raised their eyes to the Lord. But Balaam's going to raise his eyes to an interesting phrasing. To raise the eyes when you're on top of a mountain when you're looking down at Israel, means you're no longer either looking at Israel or looking at the ground, unless he was bowing down first and then raised his eyes and saw Israel. So Balaam's taking probably a posture of bowing down, but we have to deduce that. The Bible doesn't say it. So it could be that spiritually speaking, he's not bowing down at all. And he's only physically doing it because we can see the angle of the eyes and figure all that out. So if he's raising his eyes from a high area, it implies that he had to be physically bowing down or that he's fallen down in verse 4, but he has to lift his eyes to see Israel. And then here's the third oracle. Then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. These are fancy words. What did he see? Well, he's looking to the wilderness, even though he's at a prostitution center. So he's, you know, doing the right thing there. He's looking the other way. And, and hopefully what he sees here is the Almighty God, but it doesn't say that. It says the vision of the Almighty. So he doesn't really see God here. This time there's no attempt to curse. Balaam's just going to do what God tells him to do. He gives himself over to this a little bit and the spirit comes upon him. Balaam's smart enough to quit resisting God at the very least. Utter, utterance implies that these are God's words that are bypassing Balaam, but they're not forced on Balaam. So at this point, maybe Balaam and Balak aren't on such good of terms because Balak's been a little bit threatening. Uh, the word almighty there is a word that in the Hebrew is Shaddai. So it means powerful. A lot of times we say El Shaddai, God Almighty. Um, it's a very old and a rare word. Um, it, it implies big God, Shaddai. When you don't put El in front of it, then it's just big God. And I think that's something, again, we see this kind of way that the world twists their religion. So there's a God there that they're worshiping, but it's not distinct to Jehovah or Jesus. And we see a lot of that right now in kind of the universal church or the uniting of churches around the world where instead of saying Jesus, they just say God. Or literally, big guy upstairs is how that would be translated. So you still see Balaam not really submitting to Jehovah he's, he's, or, or even Elohim. He's submitting to big guy, big God. And that's the word Shaddai without L in front of it. So that same term is used, I think, back in Genesis with Jacob. You see Elohim all over in Job. This is part of what dates Job is that that word Shaddai is a very ancient word. So you'll see Shaddai Elohim. And in Job then we know that's a really old book because they just didn't use that word as they moved forward. And as Israel moves forward, they use Jehovah over and over again. 
it's a clue that Balaam is trained in the ancient words for God, but he's not trained in the words that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob passed down through Joseph and got taught to Moses to the whole nation. So they're not using the current words, he's using older words, which tells you he's a starchy academic. Does that make sense? He's speaking in King James and nobody talks that way anymore. Israel's moved on to new discourse and new language. So what do we see when God just lets him see things and what does he show? Here's what he sees. Verse 5. Notice how the language shifts here and it gets more glorious. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. God's work is beautiful. The tents are in that order like a cross. It's like a massive art piece like rows of crops lined out perfectly. It's orderly and it's lovely to him. So he's just looking and seeing what he can see in the physical world. Like valleys that stretch out. Now he moves to a metaphor. Like gardens by the riverside. Israel's growth is a total blessing. And when the camp is blessed, when they make this garden, this river, then he's looking at a wasteland, but it has a garden in it. It has a river in it. There's something beautiful down in that wasteland. And he sees it for what it is, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the water. Here he shifts to Jehovah because he's speaking what the Lord wants him to say. It's like the Lord's teaching him how to speak again. So aloes give lotion, especially to dry skin. Some of you may use them or even have them in your kitchen. Cedars are a preserving wood. They sustain things even when they resist rot. They both renew and they both endure over time. So verse 7, he shall pour buckets of water from his buckets, or he shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. So this nation's going to bless people. In the Septuagint, this verse reads, there shall come a man out of his seed, and he shall rule over many nations. That's interesting, right? So even by the time this got translated over to the Greek, they translated it as though it's talking about a singular person. Um, his king shall be higher than a gog. In the Hebrew, that's I will overtop and his kingdom shall be exalted. So there's a person, an individual, he in verse 7, that again just pops out in this oracle. He starts talking about a Messiah, this guy that doesn't even know Israel or the promises. Messiah is, of course, higher than Amalek. Uh, uh, Amalek's from Esau in Genesis 36, 12, uh, that kingdom that's being talked about. Uh, his kingdom, uh, and again, if you read it literally, and I kind of like this stuff, the kingdom shall overtop even the overtop. So when you look at it will be higher than Agog or Amalek. Um, it will be overtopping the overtoppers. Now we speak all in the singular. All of this. Verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down and he lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. Here we don't see a lioness. We just see a lion. This is a quote from Genesis 49.9, which is interesting because it's part of Jacob's blessing that God promised Jacob way back in Genesis. So here's this guy from another country that's quoting Genesis. And so he either had access to copies of those scrolls and he's quoting them, or God's actually putting words in his mouth that are consistent to what God said back to Jacob. This is fascinating. Genesis 49.9, it reads, Judah is lion's whelp. He who bows down, he who lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. So he's quoting something that likely he didn't have access to, but maybe he did if you want to be a skeptic. 
he could have had access to those scrolls too. Jewish people treat this as a military passage. They don't treat this as spiritual, but they do treat it as a messianic passage. It's talking about a military leader that will conquer. So they'll come out of Egypt with the strength of an ox and they'll consume the nations and his enemies. Let's not get angry at the Jewish people because that sounds fairly militarily. All the Christians did when they first started telling people about Jesus is they said that's a spiritual battle that's being fought. It's not a military battle. And the way they do to that is they go back up to verse 5 and 6 and say, look, 5 is the literary physical piece, but then immediately we're going into a metaphor at that point, and that metaphor comes right through to verse 8 and 9. It's not a military conquest that we're talking about. We're not talking about Israel beating up on Balak. We're talking about something very different. And when you talk about Messiah, you're talking about an individual. That lion that opens the book in Revelation 5.5, the one who can loose the seal, who can stop that person? Who is the one worthy to open the seal? It's the lion of Judah. And here we see that same reference of this lion, who's worthy, who can rouse him, who tops him, who can beat him up? Nobody. And it's a rhetorical question. Blessed is he who blessed you and cursed is he who cursed you. So that's from Genesis 12.3. This last part is kind of a rebuke of Balak and Balaam who have been trying to curse him. Um, and it keeps getting worse because every time they try to curse him, they're heaping curses upon themselves. Blessed is he who blessed you and cursed is he who cursed you. Still a true comment today. People that bless Israel are still blessed. And the countries that ally with Israel do really well. It'll be interesting in the next few years to see what happens with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, who both just made an alliance with Israel. Watch their economies skyrocket. And then you don't go back and say, Dickers called this two years ago. Go back and say, look at what the Lord has done. Those who bless Israel are blessed, both physically and spiritually. Those who bless God's people, those who bless Jesus, they're blessed. And the ones who don't are just cursed. It's like a plague unto them. Then Balak's anger was mad. This is another thing with the world. Why is he getting mad here? You'd think he would bow down and serve Jehovah as the most powerful God. Because they've tried the heights of Baal. They've tried Peor. They've tried the Watchtower. It seems like Jehovah just keeps having more power. The logical thing to do if you're Balak is to make alliance with Israel and be buddies with them and start to worship Jehovah. But instead of doing the logical thing, he just gets angry at Balaam, which poor Balaam. So he strikes his hands together. I think this is, I don't even know what that means. So clearly it's a sign of being mad in the ancient world or something. You strike your hands like he clapped at him. I think that should be in a veggie tale somewhere. Like I'm so mad at you, I will clap at you. So, um, so he does. This is a bad thing when a king, a powerful king, claps his hands in your face. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you've bountifully blessed them three times. Complete blessing. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. This is code for I'm not paying you a dime for your services. Now, Balaam... Being a greedy person doesn't like this. Balak reneges on his promise. This is a contrast to what God said about himself. Remember God said, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent or turn. Hath he said, I shall do it, and or has he spoken and not make it good? Where God is true and his word is true, 
Balak is not true and he breaks his word right in the same chapter. He just poses a perfect opposite to Moses, to God, to people that are honorable. People think they can put value on a religion and then pay off to get what they want. Like they get a personal Jesus that just does everything they like, right? And, and there's a deception to that that's horrible. So Balak thought he could get what he wanted if he just paid Balaam enough money, and it doesn't work. So Balaam said to Balak, it's fun because now the bad guys are fighting with each other. Did I not also speak to you and your mes- to your messengers whom you sent to me saying, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, I have to speak. Didn't I tell you I was going to say whatever the Lord said to me? I told you that. Balaam then continues to blame God for holding him back. He uses the Lord's name in vain here. Uh, basically, Balaam's got a point in that he did say that to Balak, right? So there, you could argue this out legally, and they didn't have a written contract, but Balak did say he would pay him, and Balaam said, I'm going to say maybe good things. Um, but holding back the pay from Balaam seems to tick Balaam off. This is not a friendly response or a graceful response. So you take away Balaam's money, and now Balaam's going to get nasty, which is why the next part is, even, I think, even more funny. And now, indeed, I'm going to my people. Come, I'll advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. <laughs> people, people, people. So there's no preparations this time. There's no show. There's no pretense. Balak's just going to tell, Balaam's going to tell Balak the rest of the story. You want to know what? There's even more that God told me, and I'm going to give you the rest of it because he was holding it back, trying to get his money, maybe. But he just starts spouting off some things. And I like the idea of my people will advise your people what to do, uh, will do to your people in the latter days, what this people will do to your people in the latter days. People, people, people. So we get a fourth prophecy, but it's a bonus prophecy. There's no altars being built. Balak doesn't ask for it. Balak's just going to get it, because at this point, Balaam's angry and mad, and he's going to bless Israel even more, and that's how he's going to get him. Perhaps Balaam sees this whole trip to Balak was a waste. And if you go back two chapters, didn't God tell Balaam to just stay home? Don't bother. But here he's done all this stuff. Months of his life are gone with this traveling back and forth stuff. He's just spent so much time and energy, and he's not going to get paid a dime for it. This is heartbreaking. If you're a contractor, this is a bad thing. So I kind of feel for Balaam at some, some sense he should have listened to God like the donkey tried to, like the angel tried to tell him to do. He didn't listen to anybody. He just barged ahead with his own religion. And it all came to waste. It doesn't do anything. It's empty. But at this point, now that Balak's mad at him and clapped at him, clapping might mean you're in trouble. Like, watch out for your life. Because it's a thinly veiled threat that Balak makes at Balaam. Balak knows Balaam's a powerful enough dude that he can't kill him, but he can clap at him, darn it. And that's something he can do. Maybe it's like giving the finger or something back in the ancient day. Now, Balaam in his anger does this. Um, and then he uses that people term. It's a general term for people. My people, these people, your people. Indeed, Balaam's going to go home and there's a turning. And it, this advice he says he's going to give in 14, we don't really see all of the advice because we have other sources that say that he gives advice at this point to send, instead of the, him down with a curse, to send the prostitutes down into Israel. And we see that in Deuteronomy and we see it from other ancient texts that the curse of Balaam from Peor is these prostitutes that go down into Israel and start hooking up with the men. And the men are very happy about this. Free prostitutes just walking through the, the camp. 
And this is a good thing for the people of Israel. They like this, but God does not like this. And it is our first instance where God really says, don't hang out with prostitutes. So if any of you are confused about that topic, you're not supposed to do it. God says no to prostitutes in his word. Don't come up with a new religion where you have a Jesus that says prostitutes are okay because they're not okay. So he looked up, he took up his oracle. Here we don't see that. I think because it's not the point of this chapter. It's not what Moses is trying to write about. So, and he gets to it in the next chapter and kind of backtracks it chronologically to do that. So he took, took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam to the son of Peor and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and had the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, Shaddai, who falls down with his eyes wide open. Knowledge has been added this time. You notice this is kind of a repeat of his last oracle at the beginning. But this time the phrase, and has the knowledge of the Most High, is added. And he says it in the past tense. In other words, he was given this before, but God didn't make him speak it. He just told Balaam a little bit more about what's going on with Israel. And at this point, then, uh, he's repeating something he had heard from before. So it's not like a fourth oracle. It's like an addendum to the third oracle, right? So we can utter, we can hear, we can know, we can see. These are all attributes of how we know God. And he's listing through them in verse 15 and 16. God is completely accessible even to the likes of Balaam. He utters his words, he hears them, he knows them, he sees them, all because he's looking to talk to him. I see him, but I not now, verse 17. Him there is singular, and it's a proper noun. I see him with a capital H. I see him, but not now. In other words, and to some extent, he might be saying to Balak, oh, you just wait, you have a competitor, but he's not here yet. You don't have to worry about Israel yet. So maybe he's trying to pacify him there, but I, I think God's given him these words, so it's prophetic. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, which is a symbol for authority, shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Whoa, this is how prophets fight with kings. Oh, you want a prophecy? I'll give you a prophecy. You're going to get destroyed, dude. Israel's going to wipe you off the earth. Just not yet. It's interesting here that Balaam starts by talking about an individual, a person, a him. And perhaps he's recognizing the angel that met him on the road. Maybe that's who he's talking about. Um, we don't know. Israel and Jesus ultimately have authority over all of these folks. Those who have strayed away from God. He's, they're still known. People that are outside of God's will still know who God is and what God wants. Matthew 2, we have seen him and we've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Interestingly, when Jesus came, there was a star that came with him. Jesus had authority and power, but it didn't come from this earth. That authority and power does batter the brow of Moab and so does Israel. So both Israel and Jesus do this. Um, there, there are no Moabites left on the earth. They're gone. There are Israelites still left on the earth. So there's both a prominent glorious star with Israel and there's, a, there's an authority and rulership and a scepter with Israel and with Jesus. So it works both ways. I like prophecies that do that. Don't forget about this two million people just sitting in the, in the valley below, which Balak was scared of to start with. Don't worry about those people. Worry about this guy that's going to come out of that nation because he's going to whip your butt. And I think that's an interesting prophecy because he could just say that army is going to kick your butt, but he doesn't say that. So 
says, watch out for this other person that's coming. He's not here yet, but he's on his way. Daniel and the Magi would have been in the area of Persia that this place is. So it could be this star thing is something they started watching, like the Balaam priests started looking for right now. And it could be that this is exactly where that starts. And then Daniel comes in as a Jewish person and starts educating him and bringing the word with him. And he had a school of Magi around him when he was in Babylon, right? And it would have been in this location, Baal Peor. I think that's cool. The sons of tumult is another great word thing. This is great poetry at, at all levels. So Jesus is coming. He's going to wreck everything you have. All the false undercuttings, if you translate the word tumult, they're undercuttings. If you have a wall built, one of the ways to break a wall down is to go underneath it and dig a hole and compromise its foundations. That's an undercutting, but you're making tumult when you do that to topple the walls, so to speak. So the sons of tumult is translated Seth, Seth, which is to cut under a wall. And it's also talking about this group of people, the Moabites, that were Seth's descendants. So the names in Hebrew make a difference because they come back in these prophecies. And, it, and they use it in that kind of way. So the sons of tumult literally translated are Seth's Seths that come out. And so it's kind of cool. Anyways, remember Balak, the king of Moab, but there's other princes here too. Like the world has gathered to come look at Israel. And in that sense, all of them have a chance right now to just move and migrate because they're being warned. So this is one of the things that you get a lot of times with non-Christians. They'll say, well, look at how God made it. Everybody gets killed and there's all this slaughter that happens and God tells them to do it. God also warned them well in advance. Get out of the way. So those people, those families, all these princes that are gathered around, they could go back to their little village and say, we're going to migrate. Pack up, let's go. God's moving in. And they have a chance. They get a lot more chances, but this is just one of them. They're told they're going down. Verse 18, And Edom shall be a possession. Ser also, his enemies shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. So the mixes Israel's as a plurality with the singular one that's in here. Um, and it's just fascinating how this comes. While Israel, plural, does valiantly, out of Jacob, one singular shall have dominion and destroy his enemies. That could be a reference to David or Jesus. There's parallel truths being told. Edom, Edom was aggressive to God's people. Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Uh, Obadiah is, is in here. It talks about their fall. It's a whole prophetic book about how they're going to fall. The city ear that they're talking about uh, can also be an anguish or a terror. A lot of Israel Israelites going to destroy these cities, uh, and Jesus will destroy the terror. Let me say that again. Jacob, the one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. What's left of the city or the terror, it translated, is going to be destroyed by the one. So Jesus doesn't just beat things physically. He's also going to beat terror itself. What's to be scared of if you have eternal life? There's nothing to fear anymore. New Testament picks up on that theme. We'll get to it in a few years. Then he looked at Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but the last until he perishes. The, the, Amalek was the first among the nations. They're not the biggest. They're not the most powerful. They're not the wealthiest. They were the first to attack Israel. Remember back in Exodus, right? As they crossed the Red Sea, the Amalek, Amalekites took their shot. So Amalek, Amalek, Amalek was the first among the nations 
but shall be the last until he perishes. Uh, so they'll be around for a while. Their final end comes in 1 Chronicles 4, if you want to read about it. Then he looked at the Kenites and took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher, Assyria, carries you away captive? And Assyria does carry away them. All of these things come true. So Balaam's going around the room, and he's telling Balak, you're going to go down. And then he goes and he turns to the Edomites and says, you're going down. Turns to the Amicalites and says, you're going down. Which means this is a whole host of princes that Balak has gathered against Israel. The whole world has gathered against Israel. At the end of days, Revelation says that the whole world will gather against Israel once again. And once again, God's going to kick all their butts. And they might not have these handy prophecies to warn them to get out of the way. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Assyria carries you away captive? Israel's not going to beat you up. You're going to get beat up by Assyria. And the only reason he says that is because it's what God told him to say because it's actually what's going to happen in the future. Judges 1.16 contrasts a friend of Israel where there's harmony but they never join them and people who hang out with God's people but never give their lives. That's the Kenites. Remember, the Kenites aren't aggressive towards Israel right now, are they? They're just a prince that's sitting up here on this hill. But the Kenites are going to actually join Israel, but they never become part of Israel. They actually play by the rules for a while, but then they still get carried off by Assyria because Assyria takes off the northern kingdom and the Kenites then would have gone with them too. How long? Actually, a pretty long time. It's going to be a few hundred years before that happens. So Balaam's not only attacking those people that will physically, militarily attack Israel, he's actually giving prophecies for the Kenites in verse 21, who are people that actually move in and live with the Israelites. This is kind of like he's hitting a lot of human history with this prophecy. Verse 23, then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, which is kind of like, listen, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coasts of Cyprus and they shall afflict Ashur or Assyria and afflict Eber and so, sh and so shall Amalek until he perishes. Imagine the dread that the most powerful spiritual guy in the world gives you when he says, this is going to happen to you. You're going down and everybody thinks Balaam's the guy. He still has this spiritual power. Have you met people like this? They got the deep resonant voices. And when they talk, it actually sounds like God's talking, right? Or you, you know, like soothsayers or gypsies they have this atmosphere about them and they create it they try to to make them seem mystical and powerful and they can read right into your soul that's what he does and he's reading in their soul saying your soil is doomed and you're going to burn and in this sense he's speaking truth right israel's on the move these people are down there singing and they're claiming victory after victory they're going to get you and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so the whole Middle East is going to be conquered. Interestingly, I think, um, the until he perishes, in the Hebrew that's Obed-Ad, which means to perish forever, an eternal perishing. So there's something spiritual going on about that too. It's not just a physical death. You're going to die forever. So this is the first end time prophecy we see. It's really vague. Every time throughout the Bible from here on out, when we see prophecies of Jesus or the end time, they get a little more crystal clear. But this is the first one. And it's big, broad strokes. And the picture will get filled in just like a Bob Ross painting in little blasts all at once. And you'll be like, how did we get to there? 
Like, wow, what happened? Now we know that that's going to happen and that. So, but this is the first time it's the sketch. It's the big overview. And this world events picture is a depiction of woe for people that aren't following or with God's people. Cyprus is Katin, and in Genesis 10.4, it represents all of the Jewish people. Or, I'm sorry, not the Jewish people. represents all of the European tribes. So when it says there's going to be ships coming out of Cyprus, Cyprus is the gateway to the west. Because remember, we're looking from the Holy Land, and we look west, and what you see is Cyprus, which would be a major shipping point that all ships coming from Europe would come from. So there's going to be this attack that comes from that direction. Daniel 11.30 says the same thing. There's going to be an attack from the West that will conquer all of the Middle East. All Semitic tribes are going to be beat up in this single assault. And the entire Middle East is going to get conquered all through Mesopotamia. So these are the final words of Balaam, the most powerful prophet that's documented in pagan history in this part of the world. The earliest prophet we have is documented as saying these things. Now, sadly, in the Aramaic texts, they do not repeat these prophecies. So Balaam is noted in the Aramaic texts, but Balaam's prophecy here is, is recorded in the Bible. They don't have any of these doom and gloom prophecies reported in there. They just have these random kind of things about the vultures are coming and doom and gloom that I read at the beginning of tonight, right? So he leaves here and he's just kind of a broken man. And everything that comes out of his mouth from here forward based on the archaeological record, is just like sad doom and gloom stuff. Like he goes back to his home and he pouts for the rest of his life. And I think that's, I mean, he's, something snaps in him at this point. And we can see that between the two of them. This is the equivalent, Balaam saying you guys are all dead meat, is the equivalent, I think, of Donald Trump getting on the news tomorrow and saying, I need to let all the Republicans know we're going to lose. Not only are we going to lose in November, we're going to lose every governorship, every Senate, every Congress, we're losing all positions that we have in the country. That would be like what this would feel like for those pagan people. He was their guy. He represented their team. And he's giving a prophecy that says you're all going to go. And you're all going down. This would have been devastating for these people. And I just, sometimes it, it helps to just think like, what would it feel like to be them and have Balaam say this to you? He took up his oracle. Alas, who's going to live when God does this? The ships are going to come from the coast of Cyprus, and they'll, they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. You're all going down. Oracle 1, Israel's really blessed. Oracle 2, the nature of God. Israel is in tune with that nature. Oracle 3, Israel's really blessed by God. Oracle 4, you guys are done. That's what we put tonight together. It's a lot of fancy words to say it's over, people. So with all their bluster, three different heights, lots of princes, nothing going, 21 altars, 42 very expensive beasts getting killed on the altar, and no fluffies. All this wondrous stuff being done, and they got nothing. All they're being told is all that meat they sacrificed is dead meat didn't do any good and it was wasted, which is maybe where we get the phrase dead meat from. I don't know. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place and Balak went his way too. It's all over. They both go their own way. Balaam never gets his loot. The greed didn't work. This is kind of the rest of the story. He gets a little credit though. 
he goes back, which is what God told him to do in the first place. He just does it against his will and without the loot he was looking for. So we should be as disgusted with broken promises. I can resonate with him on that. He gets killed in Numbers 31, verse 8, and Joshua 13, 22, both accounts say he was killed by the sword. So as Israel comes in and there's battles, they show up at his house and he's killed by the sword, and that's it. We never hear from Balaam again. Balak, what way does he go? He never got his curse on Israel, so his pride didn't work. But he gets cursed instead. Um, in Numbers 31, 16, Balak takes Balaam's counsel and he tries to undermine the purity of Israel. Uh, and we'll see a little bit of that here even in the next chapter. He gets some credit in this. Balak understood that the fight was spiritual. And he tried to fight the spiritual fight. He just lost. So you got a worldly guy. You got a spiritual guy. Both of the world. I can kind of resonate with that a little bit. He turns away from the physical battle because the spiritual one was a total mess. And he realizes he'll never win things in the physical sense if he doesn't win them in the spiritual sense first. So for that sense, Balak had some wisdom. He wasn't an idiot. And we should be so aware too. We can learn something from people like Balak. We should be as tuned in that the real battle is spiritual. It's never physical. Right? So tune into that. And then I want to get that there's a third character here that hasn't been mentioned in three chapters. That's Israel. What's Israel doing right now? They're feasting and singing songs and singing little happy kumbaya tunes around the campfire. That's all Israel has been doing this whole time while all this stuff is going on. All these curses are going thrown around. They're just singing songs and doing their little wee stuff down in the valley. So they're making gardens out of wildernesses. And I thought that was kind of a cool image too. And Balaam called it. That's what they're doing. They're just joyfully living their life. And Balak and Balaam probably think they're just foolish idiots, but they're like, we're foolish idiots that are winning this battle. And thank you for that. So they don't even get to gloat, but they should and we should because we get to read it from the narrative perspective. We get to gloat a little bit. Balak and Balaam just got their butts kicked. And the people of God didn't have to do anything to make that happen. So I think that's wonderful. Sadly, instead of fighting, Balak's people take another more effective route. They go after the purity of Israel. And they go right at it. And that's what's going to happen next. Where greed and power didn't work, lust is going to work. And it's going to undermine Israel a little bit. So let's say a word of prayer with that happy thought ending tonight. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for the power of your word. Open our eyes, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of being able to open it and read it. um, And just going through it sentence by sentence and word by word, Lord. We just... What a powerful way to get our foundation set in your word and to know your word before we we decide what our word is going to be. And Lord, may we match you. May we not try to build our own idols and and our own altars to get you to do what we want you to do. May we just submit to your word and your will and sing songs and eat feasts and be in fellowship with each other. May we do that with joy. Lord, help us to minister to one another, to meet each other's needs, to care for one another and love one another. And without that, everything Balak and Balaam were doing is just noise. It's just clattering cymbals and and barking at the moon. And Lord, we just pray that uh, we could never be so foolish, but, but honor you in wisdom and in truth and in strength and in power. May we be a light to everyone we know. And may we be a joyful message of hope to everyone we know because no one has to endure what Balak and Balaam went through. People can just choose you. Uh, And they can choose you, Lord, in in truth, and they can choose you in confidence. Lord, help us to not be donkeys, uh, to be stubborn, to be willful in the face of your glory and your grace and your majesty and your beauty and the gardens that you grow in the wilderness. May we 
recognize that your camp is beautiful and your ways are true and straight. May we just celebrate that. Lord, I thank you so much for the role models in our life and for the grandparents that have been married for 60 years. Lord, we just pray a blessing on that couple that have shown what a healthy and a loving marriage looks like to everyone in their family and everyone they know. Lord, may our marriages be as strong. May you help us to love one another, to forgive each other's trespasses, to put up with each other's foibles and honor you um, because you first loved us and to do that in marriage and in truth. Lord, I pray for the single people in this room that they can be blessed in serving you and devoting their whole life and their whole heart to you. Uh, may you help them to do that um, forever or until you bring them a spouse. Lord, whatever your will is, we pray for that. May we be content with whatever our portion is today. Lord, bless us. Help us to never act in greed, in pride, or in lust, and to only act according to your will out of love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.